Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Nora, and I am a member here. Today's reading will be from Genesis chapter 23. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Nora. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be together. Let's pray together before we look now to the God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the chance to be together, the chance to worship, the chance to hear from you according to this passage. And uh, as Greg said so well in our call to worship God, so often we think about how to live for you and, and to live by faith. And we pray that you would use this passage in a way to prepare us to die by faith. Would you use this story, which may even on our first hearing seem strange, odd, insignificant, but would you open up our eyes to see the beauty and the power uh, of your word here? 
to see why you have inspired this story and to see what you want to do with it in our lives. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. As a kid, I lived in the same house um, all the way ever since I was one year old. My parents actually still live in this house. Uh, And then across the street from the house, uh, there's always been a Jewish cemetery. And and after preaching through Genesis and, and seeing how important it is of this promise of God to multiply the offspring of Abraham, that's given me a whole new sense of appreciation for that Jewish cemetery right down the street from my childhood home. These are, in many cases, I'm sure, the literal offspring of Abraham, descended from this man. It just so happens that not long ago, I also discovered a website uh, where you can see aerial images of the entire state of Wisconsin, actually, from 1937. Uh, It looks basically like a Google satellite view. I have no clue how they did this back in 1937, but it's there. You can search it and find it. And for fun, I have been searching for really prominent places in my life so that I could look back to see what those places look like in 1937. And of course, one of the first places I wanted to see was my childhood home. It's kind of an older home, and I thought it was built in that era. It might be possible that it's there. It might not be. I don't really know. So I searched for it. But you can imagine when you look back at 1937, it's hard to find things that are here today, even if they are there in 1937, because most of the landmarks that we are familiar with weren't there back in 1937. But when I looked at the current satellite view on Google of my childhood neighborhood, and then I compared that to this satellite image, this imagery from 1937, there was one landmark that basically guided me on my way home, if you will, showed me exactly where my childhood home was. And if you can imagine, it was the Jewish cemetery right across the street. The pattern of the street from above uh, is exactly the same today as it was back in 1937. So I saw my house was there that was actually built. It was kind of in a farm field, which is really kind of a cool thing. It's like just a city block neighborhood these days. Um, But as I looked at this image, there was a lot of thoughts that went through my head, but one thought was somewhat inescapable for me when I saw that Jewish cemetery. And it was basically, wow, Those offspring of Abraham have been buried there for a very long time. Now, I could not tell you the accomplishments of any of these people. I couldn't tell you even any of their names. And yet here they were, dead and buried, just yards from my childhood home my entire life. In fact, by the time I was born, they had already been dead and buried there for half a century which really makes you realize how narrow our field of view often is in this life, isn't it? How, how much time we spend being anxious and, and, and worrying about the next three to five years, if we're lucky and on a bad, bad day, maybe even the next week, we are worried about when the truth is someday and probably not long from now, even in the scope of history, we will all be buried somewhere. We will all be most likely forgotten by most people who are still living, much like these offspring of Abraham buried across the street from my childhood home. Now, that may seem really grim and hopeless to you, and the truth is, I have to tell you, it is. (laughs) It is grim and hopeless. I don't know how you process it, frankly, unless 
there is hope for us even in death. Last week, we reached the climax of this Abraham story. It's when God tested him by asking him to sacrifice his son. It's the son who basically embodied the whole promise of eventually being raised up into a great nation. If it weren't for him, there would be no hope of that. It would seem the son they waited 25 years ago, yes, to sacrifice him. And what we saw last week in that passage is that faith in this God is the essential ingredient of true worship. He wants us to see that only he could ever keep this promise so that, in turn, we would rely entirely on him to keep it. And nothing else and no one else, not the blessings he gives us, not even the son he gives us miraculously after waiting 25 years, he wants us to rely on him. Well, In our passage today, we see how that principle applies to a very unique life circumstance, you might say the final life circumstance, which is death. In Genesis 23, just two chapters after giving birth to the only son that she would give birth to in this particular line we're gonna see, Sarah dies. And with her, of course, also the hope that Abraham would be able to keep having more and more kids in this line. And as exciting as it would have been that God did provide them with this part of the promise, he's given them a son, they have offspring. As soon as Sarah dies, it becomes painfully obvious that there is still much more promise yet to be fulfilled. God has a lot more providing still to do. Because while they did have this son, they did not possess any of the land in the promised land. And therefore, Abraham did not even have a place to bury his wife. And so what we're going to see today is this story of Abraham negotiating with the Hittites in order to purchase a piece of land to bury his wife. But, but more than that, today, we are going to consider how should our faith in God's promise change the way that we approach dying? I have to tell you as a pastor, I, I feel responsible to do many things in your life. I feel responsible to preach the word of God, to, to pray for you, to be there, to, to, to disciple you, to counsel you however I can. But in all of that, I have to tell you a weightier responsibility that I, I really do feel. And I think any faithful pastor would feel is the responsibility of helping us to die well, preparing us to die. In some cases, even I trust burying some of you. Now, you may not think about death very often at all. Uh, you may be crippled by the fear of death on a regular basis, but either way, today I think we will see what we need to know and believe about God in order to die well. So with that said, Bible's open. We're going to walk through this story together. We're going to try to understand the primary claim that God is after here. Why did he inspire this to be in our Bibles? How does he want this story to shape us? And when we have a better, clearer sense of that, we'll spend some time applying everything we see. Now, the first thing I want you to notice actually is going to come from last week's passage. It's important that we remember something God said at the end of last week's passage. If you remember, as soon as Abraham passed the test, he showed that he was willing to sacrifice his son. God called it off and, and gave another sacrifice. But then he also right away reaffirmed the entire 
promise. And we were kind of joking about this in our small group this week, that it was almost like that episode of Oprah where she says, you get a blessing and you get a blessing and you get, it's like, all these blessings are going to happen. All these good things are going to be, but there's one specific promise that God makes, which becomes very relevant here. I want you to look back with me at chapter 22 at the end of verse 17. God said, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Now, in the ancient world, in ancient cities, a gate of a city is a really strategic and important part of the city. If you can imagine, most ancient cities are surrounded by a defensive perimeter wall so that enemy nations and clans couldn't just come and sweep through the city. And so the gate is the only way in. And, and for that reason, whoever controlled the gate of a city possessed the whole city. And this is what God just promised to Abraham. Last week, he promised that his offspring will possess the gate of his enemies. But here in the meantime, not only do they not possess the gate of this city, he doesn't even have any land to bury his wife in it. And so look with me at verse 4. He says, he even acknowledges, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And that phrase there, out of my sight, is supposed to give us a bit of a hint of what kind of land Abraham is about to ask the Hittites for here. This is not like prime real estate in downtown Hittite city where everybody wanted to hang out. Uh, this was not even a lush green field where he could make a lot of money harvesting crops. No, this would have been a remote field with some rocky caves, easy to overlook, kind of like that Jewish cemetery that was always just a block away from my house every single day of my childhood. The point is this. If Abraham buys this field, which he's about to do, it will be a far cry from possessing the gate of this city. Not even close. But what I want you to notice is that when he makes this request, he even acknowledges, I'm a sojourner, I'm a foreigner. It seems like the Hittites are basically trying to correct him. Look at verse 5 with me. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. It says, None of us will withhold from you. That's important. His tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. There's just a few observations I want to make here. Uh, first, these enemies whose gates would be possessed by Abraham's offspring someday seem to love the guy, <laughs> right? Which is kind of strange, right? Uh, it shows us, I think, that Abraham is blessed by God. God's showing him favor. It also shows us, I think, that he has been a blessing to these people as he sojourned among them like God told him to be back in chapter 12. For that reason, next, I also want you to notice they just offer up any of their tombs to him free of charge. They don't want him to pay a thing. And finally, I want you to see, they even use the same language from last week's passage. Did you catch that? This is why he passed the test, because he, Abraham, did not withhold his only son from God. And here they are using that same language. That was the climax of the entire Abraham story. That was a defining moment, not only in the book of Genesis, but even in the entire Old Testament. And so we are supposed to get a sense here by the author's choice of words 
that these Hittites were bending over backwards to try and make it as easy as possible for Abraham to bury his wife Sarah in their land, which is the key. They're basically saying, my friend, we love you. You can have the best burial plot in any of our best cemeteries when God just promised him that his offspring would possess the gate of their city. Which helps us, I think, to understand why Abraham rejects the offer. He insists, no, I have to pay full price. Now, from this point on, the most of the rest of the passage sounds like two old friends bickering over who's going to pay for lunch. Does it not? It's kind of uncomfortable. Uh, it's uncomfortable to be in that position. It's uncomfortable to listen to two very old dead people be in that position as well. Uh, but there's this rhythm, if you've noticed. There's sort of a pattern that repeats itself. They keep saying, Abraham, we love you. Bury your dead in our land. And he keeps bowing to them and saying, thank you very much. But respectfully, no, I will pay full price. Over and over, back and forth. Again, an uncomfortable amount of times. And with each exchange, notice, they always begin by saying, listen to me, hear me, before they make their case, which only seems to emphasize the fact that they are not listening to each other, and they are not hearing each other at all. They are on a completely different page. Because these Hittites were just trying to bless their buddy Abraham. They wanted to do him a favor. But meanwhile, Abraham had his eyes on God's promise. Abraham knew someday this entire city will belong to my offspring and God is the only one who deserves the glory for having given it to them. So listen, I am going to bury my wife here because this will be our homeland and I am going to pay full price so that no one can claim it from us or take credit for having given it to us. I want you to notice something here. I want to pause and just reflect on Genesis in general. This is something we've seen in every sermon in this entire series, and it's really important we see this is how Genesis works. The passage never comes right out and says that Abraham was motivated by the promise of God from chapter 12. It never says that. Instead, the author uses key words and repeated phrases, repetition, not withholding son, the gates of the city, possessing the land. He uses these phrases to show us Abraham's motivation. This is how Genesis works. If we want to see it, we want to understand it, we need to see and understand. We have to read it carefully. We have to reflect on what it means the truth is, Abraham easily could have brought Sarah's body back to their original homeland, back to Haran, in the Ur of the Chaldeans, where his kindred and his father's house were. They would have let him bury her anywhere, in the land that God called them out of in order to seek the promise. Or he could have taken these Hittites up on their offer and just done it, just buried his wife in their land. But no, he wants to bury his wife in a way that points forward to the fulfillment of the promise. And for that reason, he wants everyone to know the details of this transaction. This is even one more key evidence that this is what's going on here. I want you to notice first, the author tells us in verse four that Abraham made this request to the Hittites. That is, all of them? <laughs> Uh, this, is, this is basically a public real estate hearing. 
And the author, he keeps reminding us that it works this way throughout the story. In verse 5, the Hittites together, all of them answered Abraham. In verse 7, Abraham rose and he bowed to the Hittites. In verse 10, Abraham the Hittite, uh, sorry, Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham, how? In the hearing of the Hittites and of all who went in at the gate of this city. Do you see this? Throughout the story, it's almost as if it matters that everyone in the city knows that Abraham bought this cemetery fair and square. And then I love how this, this bickering and bantering back and forth finally ends. Ephron lets the price of the land seemingly kind of slip out of his mouth. I don't know if you caught that. He basically says, look, the field, it's worth like 400 shekels. He's basically saying, what's 400 shekels between a couple buddies? He says, bury your dead. And it says, Abraham listened to him. But what's interesting is he actually completely ignored everything he just said, except for the price of the land. He counts the coins. He gives them to Ephron. He buys the field. And he buries his wife. Look, just look with me at verse 17. It says, so after this transaction, the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was at the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of this city. That just ties all these themes together here in one neat little bow. In other words, everyone in this city that Abraham's offspring will someday possess, all of them now know that he does at least possess this cemetery. By the end of his life, this will be very interesting because this will be the only land that Abraham possesses in the entire promised land. I want you to think of the irony of this. He wants to see his line and his life multiplied so that all these lives could be redeemed and, and blessed. And by the end of his life, the only land he possesses is a cemetery to bury dead people in. Later in Genesis, we will learn that the rest of this family will be buried here as well in these caves, including Abraham, including Isaac and his wife Rebekah, including Jacob and his wife Leah, the first three generations of this promised line. Then after Jacob's generation, we know he had 12 sons. Those sons would go on to, to, to name, the, to be the head names of the tribes of Israel. And we know that Joseph and his 11 brothers will leave these graves behind because they will be sold and go to be slaves in Egypt. But we have to remember something very important to make sense of this passage today. We have to remember this story was not written in Abraham's lifetime. This story was not even written during those 400 years that they spent enslaved in Egypt. No, this story was written after they were delivered out of slavery in Egypt, more than likely as they were on their way back to this promised land. <laughs> so just imagine 
what this story would have meant to those Israelites as they journeyed through the wilderness on their way to conquer this promised land, knowing full well that the gates of these cities were still possessed by enemy nations. And those nations would not just hand over the gates of the city to them. They may even have to die to see this promised family possess this land. But, but, their matriarch was buried there in a field that their father Abraham bought fair and square in the hearing of the Hittites. Do you see what this author's doing? This passage is meant to give God's people great hope in the face of death, even if we die before the promise is fulfilled. And here's why, church. is because even after we die, God will keep keeping his promise. You see that? More, more than anything else, I am convinced that is why this story is in our Bibles. It is here to persuade us of this truth, and it is here to comfort us with this truth. Abraham wanted Sarah to be buried in a way that underscored his faith, that even though she was now dead, the promise of this God lived on. And the same can be true of us today, church. We can die and we can say goodbye to our loved ones with that very same confidence. Listen, if there is ever a time in our life when it will matter to us that only God can keep this promise, it will be in our dying day when we are forced to acknowledge once and for all that we will not be able to play any part whatsoever in keeping it. We'll be gone. But the truth is, church, as Christians today, we can be even more confident, even more certain that this claim is true. And not just that it's true for the literal descendants and offspring of Abraham. This hope has now been made available to people of all nations, including all of us, because the ultimate offspring of Abraham has come in the, in the line of Abraham. And when he did come, here's what he told us in Matthew chapter 8. Look on the screen with me. It says, he said, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west, from, from all nations, not just from Israel, and they will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is the people who die in this book right here. The people who were buried long, long ago in these caves from Genesis 23. The obvious question is, how in the world could that possibly be? And the answer is, because this story just keeps getting better and better the more you keep reading. Because this ultimate offspring of Abraham, this man, Jesus Christ, will also die. They will also lay his body in a very similar cave-like tomb even, but he will not stay in that tomb very long. Church, Jesus has risen from the dead, securing this age-old promise of God for all people who repent and believe in him. And what I want us to see is that all of it depends 
on his death as an offspring of Abraham. This is what the Apostle Paul says about this in Romans chapter 6. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And just in case you thought that when he says walking in the newness of life, maybe he just means that's a happy thought about our life going better here and now. It's not it at all what he means. And he makes that crystal clear in the very next verse. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Church, this is our hope in death. This is why we can die with faith that we will live again. Because long after Sarah died, God kept keeping his promise until Christ finally came to conquer death once and for all and to offer his eternal resurrected life to all who believe in him. But the truth is, much like the Israelites in their day, we are still waiting for that promise to be fully fulfilled. In the meantime, death is still awaiting us. We will all have to face it. And so let's just consider two takeaways from our passage today. I have bad news for us from this passage and good news for us from this passage. Uh, and I'm going to start with the bad news. The bad news is this. First, number one, we will probably die before the promise is fulfilled. We will probably die before it's fulfilled. Now, I love, I love talking with you guys about our series and the books we're going through as we go through them. And, and actually, in the last few weeks, I've gotten some really good questions from you guys, uh, basically along the lines of, well, how should we think about this promise today for us? How does that work? Is it just anytime life goes well for us, that that's the promise? Like, well, how do we think about that? It's a great question, and it can be kind of unintuitive, right, to make sense of this ancient Old Testament promise, and what does it mean today? Absolutely, it's complex. But I think it helps to just remember the goal that God had in mind with this promise from chapter 12. See, by chapter 11 in Genesis, the, the world, the creation that God made, the very good creation that he made for his glory was now filled with sinful, raging nations. And if you remember the promise in chapter 12, the great end of it is that all those nations would be blessed, that they'd be redeemed. The goal is to undo the effects of sin so that we can get back to God's original design of filling all of creation with his glory as we live together and love one another as perfect image-bearing people. And week by week, I've been trying to show us how Christ is the one that this promise has always been pointing to. And how we will never fully enjoy the fruits of this promise until he returns to establish his kingdom once and for all. So in one sense, that is how we must think of the promise today. The promise is eternal life with God in a new heavens and a new earth. That's what we should think of when we think of the promise. But what we see in this passage here 
is that we do get little glimpses of that promise here and now. We get little slices of the promised land, even today, if you will. And we see these glimpses of God's promise when God blesses us with a spouse or, or with children, and we see life continue and, and, and grow and multiply. Or even when we, when we experience success, subduing the earth somehow at work. Or when we travel, we experience the beauty of God's creation. But especially even when we share the good news of the gospel and we see people made alive by it. We see glimpses, I trust, of this promise every Sunday when we gather, when the Spirit of God opens our eyes to the beauty of his word and the glory of Christ. We see glimpses of this promise when uh, we, we dunk our friends underwater, symbolizing their death with Christ, and raise them up out of it, symbolizing their new life in Christ. We, we see glimpses of this promise when we eat and we drink of the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper. These are all glimpses pointing us back to how God wanted life to work for us before our fall and rebellion. But in this life, there will always be a shadow looming over any foretaste of the promise we get to experience. And that shadow looming over is death. We might get to buy a little slice of the promised land every now and then. We might get a little field. It might even be kind of a big field. It might even have some trees in the field. But before long, we will be buried in that field. And that's just not easy to wrap your mind around. It's really not. Uh, in fact, the world will tell us, well, listen, don't worry about all this promise stuff. Just stop thinking. Don't overthink it. Eat, drink, be happy with us. And then listen, bury your dead in our land. Be at home here with us. Don't worry about that stuff. Don't worry about what happens when you die. You'll be dead. YOLO, bro, right? It's a silly Little phrase, and, and uh, it's funny, uh, clearly Abraham did not YOLO, right? Uh, funny little phrase that people often use to justify why they go surfing or skydiving. Sure, go surfing, go skydiving. Let's not miss the profound spiritual claim that's being made in that simple little phrase even that we just laugh about. YOLO, bury your dead in our land, Right? <laughs> When we believe in God's promise, we can't think that way anymore. We can't. Because we know what's at stake in this life. And we know that God has more for us than the 70 or, or 80 years we might get if we're lucky. All of that is true. On one hand, there is more to life than what we see. But here's my point here today, church. We also have to realize that this life that we do see is just a mist. It's a mist. It will be here, and then it will vanish. Everything we see on a daily basis is temporary. It is simply meaning to point us to something bigger and greater, which will be eternal. So as much as God does have in store for us, and he does, the truth is we will almost certainly die before we experience most of that. And here's what I think this means for us in the way we live today 
And I have to tell you, I need to hear this just as much, if not more, than, than any of us today. This has weighed on me quite a bit as I've prepared for this passage and, and sermon. But I want to say today, let's not run around in our life and ministry frantically trying to make this promise happen. As if we could just put a bow on it all in the next decade or, or four or whatever it might be. We can't. We were never meant to put a bow on this promise. We're simply meant to believe that God and God alone can fulfill it. We're meant to trust in him even in death. And so church, chances are when we die, there will still be lingering sin in our lives. Chances are when we die, there will still be unresolved tension in our families. Chances are when we die, there will be all kinds of unmet hopes and expectations. When we die, there will be more small groups to lead. There will be more sermons to preach. There will be more churches to plant. There will be more children to adopt and foster. And this is why this matters so much. Because if we want to lie someday on our deathbeds with joy and with hope in our hearts, then we need to see this lesson from Sarah in Genesis 23. We have to embrace the fact that we will probably die. Unless Christ returns before we die, we will probably die before the promise is fulfilled. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. We will probably die before the promise is fulfilled, but we can die fully confident that it will be fulfilled. Fully confident. Church, if we truly believe in this Christ who died and rose again, if we have been baptized into his death as a profession of our faith in his eternal life, here's what this means for our death, church. It means that even after they lay our body to rest, Longer after that, even after, if for, for generations no one comes to visit our grave, even then, our eyes will see yet again. Our knees will bow yet again. And our tongues will confess yet again that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But church, we can't get that confidence anywhere. Uh, vague optimism and warm sentiments are not going to give us that kind of confidence when we are face-to-face -face with death. Neither, by the way, will earthly possessions like a bunch of land or, or the perfect dream house or a healthy balance on our bank accounts. When we are near death, I trust we will all be acutely aware of the fact that none of those things will be coming with us. And so this kind of confidence can only be found in Christ, in Christ alone. And I want us to think of this today. What a privilege it is that we get to know him and we get to worship him together by name. Sarah didn't get to die with that much confidence. She had some vague hope, some faint sense that God would make this happen somehow. She didn't know how or through whom. But church, we someday will get to die knowing that Christ is still alive. We will get to die knowing that he is seated on the throne with that same beating heart he has always had since he was born.
and risen again. So I want to picture, I want you to picture yourself dying someday uh, with a glad heart and with very little anxiety. Not fearfully clinging to every last breath, not burdened by all the things you didn't get or the things you didn't do, but just grateful for Christ and longing to be with him. What I want to say is that if we want to die like that, then we need to die with faith that the God of this promise will keep keeping his promise even after we die. And so let's, let's do this. I want to take a minute and just scan the room today. I know this is awkward. It's fine. We're all going to do it. Just take a look around the room at everybody who's here. Make note of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Make note of your fellow church members uh, who have been baptized with you into the death of Christ. Make note of all of them. And I want to leave us with this. Let's follow Jesus together with all of our hearts Let's obey him and let's work hard together for the sake of his kingdom, absolutely. But in all of that, let's also prepare one another to die well. Let's prepare one another to die with total confidence we will rise again and inherit the earth. Let's prepare one another to die with total confidence we will recline at table with these people in this book and let's prepare one another to die with total confidence that this promise will long outlive us because Christ has come in the line of Abraham. He has died. He has been buried. He rose again. And church, if we have been united with him in a death like his, then we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the confidence you intend for us to have from it. We pray that we would internalize it. We pray that this would be just a one brick laid on the foundation of our life that would be preparing us eventually to die and be risen again. Use this word, God, to do that in us and let our confidence, even in death, totally shape and inform the way we live our life. We place our life in your hands. We thank you for the blood of your son, and more than that, for his eternal resurrected life. In Jesus' name, amen.